This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet or visit esv.org to get started. This is Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. Now, why would a world-renowned defender of Christianity write about all the terrible things Christians have done? Now, that's what I want to ask John Dixon, author of the new book, Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history, published by Zondervan. Now, Dixon has written more than 20 books and hosted two television documentaries in addition to his podcast, Undeceptions. Dixon takes an honest look at the church's successes and failures, and I'm I'm not sure I've ever seen that combination before in, in one title. On the one hand, he warns readers not to depend too much on Christian behavior to boost their faith. He writes this, disregarding Christianity on the basis of the poor performance of the church is a bit like dismissing Johann Sebastian Bach after hearing Dixon attempt the cello suites, end quote. At the same time, he's torn about the disconnect between the life and teaching of Jesus and the behavior of his followers. He writes this, God's love must animate the Christian's love for all. The obvious fact that this moral logic did not translate into a consistent moral theory is the dilemma at the heart of this book. Quote. These days, you'll see many Christians defend the faith by pointing out the problems with others. But owning up to the ways the church has fallen short of its own ideals may be the more appropriate path. After all, no one in our lifetime could have invented a more damaging attack on the church than scandals involving the cover-up of abuse toward children. Those wounds are entirely self-inflicted. Dixon sums up history by observing that bullies are common, saints are not. So on Gospel Bound, I'll dig in on his survey and ask whether Christianity has been a bigger contributor to evil compared to atheism and Islam, his high and low points in Christian history, and why Christians are cheerful Losers. John, thank you for joining me on Gospel Bound. Thank you, Colin. It's good to chat with you, mate. John, describe the moment you sensed a loss of faith in the church. Well, there were probably a couple of times, and, and some of them came uh, as I was writing the book itself, I must say. But uh, I, I suppose you're referring to one that I, I even mention in the book, and that is standing on the spot outside the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, third most holy site in Islam. And I was uh, filming scenes about the Crusades. And um, this is the site of a, of a massacre that in our sources is no doubt exaggerated, but even if you take the exaggerations out, it was a wholesale slaughter of Muslim men, women, and children by devout uh, Christian fighters. <laughs> um, and... Uh, they they were merciless. They broke all the rules of just war, which which had already been part of the medieval tradition, and um, just showed no mercy. It was a frenzy. And then two days later, uh, no, rather the next day, 
they um, held a Thanksgiving service in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre to praise Jesus for this um, uh, elevation of Christianity over the pagan, uh, as one source puts it. So standing in that spot, filming that scene, uh, was difficult in itself, but right in front of me, uh, next to the cameraman that I was delivering my lines to, was my Muslim guide. And she, by the end of my you know, doing the take repeatedly to get to get my lines right, had a tear in her eye. And I was suddenly confronted by the fact that um, Christian bad behavior has a 900-year-old wound uh, amongst Jerusalem Muslims. And I know all of the background of the Crusades. And, you know, I agree that the First Crusade can be described as a just war, you know, a response to Muslim aggression. Totally, I'm all over that. But what they did that day was despicable. And there doesn't seem to be much apology for it. In fact, they thought it was a great um, elevation of Christianity over the world. So, yeah, I, you know, standing there confronted with this. Muslim woman for whom it was still a live wound. It was pretty hard to say that I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. It seems like, John, the f beginning of every conversation about Christian history and apologetics, it seems, starts with the Crusades. Mm. But you, I mean, you, you, you cover this quite a bit in the book. When did Muslims start telling the story of the Crusades with themselves as the victims rather than as the conquerors? Well, this is one of the best kept secrets of the whole show. I mean, all, all of the major uh, crusades textbooks, academic textbooks, the ones that aren't engaged at all in apologetics, point out that it's really ironic because the crusades were really unsuccessful uh, as wars, uh, apart from an 80-year period uh, following the first crusade. Um, the Europeans basically were not able to hold the the lands that they uh, tried to hold and every time they went back for the second and third and fourth and fifth crusades they couldn't get jerusalem and hold on to jerusalem so they were a complete failure muslims uh saw the crusades as proof more proof of the um the wisdom of monotheism over the uh lies of trinitarian polytheism until the late 19th century and early 20th century, when uh, one of the Turkish rulers uh, noticed the encroachments of Europe in the Baltic regions, uh, completely unrelated to anything to do with the crusade, called it a new crusade. And from that moment on, we, we, can, we can date it precisely, uh, from that moment on, um, the Muslim world, because his remarks were reported very widely, the Muslim world began to call all Western encroachment on Islam and on the lands where there are Muslims a crusade. And because the Europeans have been far more successful in the 20th century and 21st at uh, uh, bullying Muslim nations, the crusades have weirdly uh, taken on this reputation that they are, they were bully wars, uh, successful bully wars, um, but they were nothing of the sort. They were they were abject failures. So essentially, decline of the Ottoman Empire. Yes, we're saying there. As, yeah, as the that decline empire of the, really exactly as the Ottoman Empire uh, declined, and, and of course, you know, Britain took over parts of their land, uh, right. and the, and then and in, into the twentieth century, uh, the the policies that supported Israel against 
uh, other Muslim nations. These were all given the language of crusades, and 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 then, you know then we talk about the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War, right. and and, and uh, you know America and England and Australia have always been the bullies because we have been more successful at wars now than the Crusaders, the actual Crusaders ever were. Right, John. Why do you feel compelled as a Protestant to take responsibility for all of the terrible things that Catholic and Orthodox Christians have done? I mean, it's not like Protestants haven't done bad things too, but I'm just wondering why grab all their stuff too? Yeah, I really wrestled with this as I, as I thought about it. I mean, it, it would be an easy tactic, of course, to uh, just say, uh, you know, the Catholics did some terrible things. They had their inquisitions and crusades. But it dawned on me that uh, I also rather like St. Augustine. <laughs> yeah, right. And I know you do too. <laughs> right. uh, he, he influenced uh, the reformed tr tradition uh, more than any of, any of the other ancients. Uh, but of course, uh, he, he was not <laughs> faultless. Um, and, and so what do we do with his uh, just war uh, theory, uh, which is really the origins of, um, of all notions of Christian warfare? Um, the Cappadocian fathers are also part of our history. They, they're the ones who really uh, explain to us how you can talk about the Trinity in a coherent in a coherent way. How does the Father, Son, and Spirit really relate to each other? Well, you've got to draw on the Cappadocians for that. You know, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, Natsiansis, and Basil of Caesarea. So, if you want them for your theology, why wouldn't you also say Ambrose of Milan? who at the, exactly the same time as the Cappadocian Fathers, exactly the same time, <laughs> that exact 30-year period, uh, was bullying people, including the emperor. And uh, when the emperor tried to make Christians pay for a synagogue they burnt down, Ambrose flexed his muscles and said, no way are we going to rebuild this temple to Satan. And he got his way, right? So my, my point is, if I want to keep the Cappadocian Fathers in my pool right. of awesomeness for Christianity, I have to also <laughs> include Ambrose of Milan, uh, who was uh, something of a bully. One point I thought was interesting in the book is you talk about how a lot of what we know about the bad things about the church are because of Protestant polemics against the Catholic Church, or at least that was a major theme there. And that actually was something that came up in a previous Gospel Bound interview I did with Alec Ryrie about his book, Unbelievers, An Emotional History of Doubt. He talked about the conditions of secularism having been considerably aided by Protestant anti-Catholic polemics, which were easily modified into anti-church polemics in general. If you could identify, John, a, a particular low point in Christian history, hmm. uh, what would it be? Well, in some ways, I have to say um, the child sexual abuse and, okay. and wow, so and our cover time, basically. So, so we are probably okay. living in the darkest age of the church. I don't think the Crusades or even the Inquisitions; these things were built up. And you mentioned Protestants actually were part of the propaganda against the Inquisitions. Part of what left the impression uh, in Europe that they were worse than they really were, and the, the documentation we now have indicates the Inquisitions, while terrible uh, <laughs> by any standard, let alone our current Christian standards, they were nothing, uh, nowhere near as as bad as um, the secular courts of the same time. So you think through all of that, um, the child sexual abuse, which which is you know has been found out to be not just a Roman Catholic problem 
I know that was an easy thing to say when all, when all of this started in Ireland in the 1990s and the early 2000s. And, and then it, you know, leapfrogged over to um, Boston and the, those Boston Globe articles. But actually, um, the, the best research on this has been done by a royal commission in Australia. Uh, royal commission is the, the elite kind of commission you can have, investigative commission. And they really did find uh, that while it is more prevalent amongst uh, Roman Catholic institutions, it's also in... Uh, evangelical institutions, the Salvation Army, Pentecostal groups, it's um, and and cover up uh, is the same, and and that that is really the compounding thing. I mean, it is a tragedy that there would be any pedophile pastor, yes, but what a tragedy that there are pastors willing to cooperate in hushing these things up. That that is just despicable. When we follow the one who said, um, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly. And I've often thought of my book as an exercise in taking the log out of the eye of the church, while not uh, downplaying the manifest beauty of uh, the Christian faith and what it has given uh, the West and, once upon a time, uh, the East, when the Byzantine Empire was current. That's not the answer I expected, John. I thought you'd go 30 years war based on that, but that's uh, very thought-provoking. I'm not going to put these words into your mouth, but I think when you add on to there the widespread use of abortion, you could just look to see how we treat our children today. And that's the epitome or sort of culmination of all evil we see in the Bible itself, child sacrifice. And it's uh, hard to hard to see how you're wrong about that. So if if we live then, John, in maybe the darkest period of Christian history, then seemingly anything would be better. We don't even have to talk about a golden era. Is there an era you'd want to be transported back to? You'd prefer to live in? Well, I mean, I rather like my iPhone and the ability <laughs> the, the ability to talk to Colin Hansen. Um, <laughs> so it'd be hard to give up these things. But I have often thought I would rather like to live in 6th or 7th century uh, Byzantine Empire, which was uh, prosperous, which had an explosion of charity, and really hospitals uh, gained incredible momentum in this period and then spread westward. But it was really the Byzantine Empire, which, which is the eastern part of the empire that Roman Empire that didn't fall. It just became Christian after Constantine. Constantine moved the capital uh, to Constantinople or what, what used to be called Byzantium. And so we call that whole eastern part of the empire uh, the Byzantine Empire. But it covered you know, all of Turkey, all, all of Greece, all of Syria, all of Judea and Galilee, <laughs> all of um, Egypt and North Africa. And they were thriving uh, with you know, intellectually. Uh, they're the ones who preserved our ancient texts of Aristotle and Plato and Plotinus and all the great classical texts. It was Christian uh, Byzantine scholars who did that. They established hospitals and charities. Uh, th they did incredible theological work. So uh, if you press me, I think I'd like to spend a month there. <laughs> okay. I can see that. You go back to the origin of hospitals, even though we'd prefer today's hospitals. <laughs> of how that's advanced over time. I, I, I just l love the thing they were able to pull off 
they were still in that sixth century going, wow, how did, how did that happen? That, that the Lord allowed us to do so much good in such a short amount of time. And this, this is the irony of this whole notion of Christendom. Um, yes, there, there were bullies in, in Christendom that we can all lament, but actually they did enormous good. The, the fact that the church became a, a bit of a bully was wonderful for the poor. I, I have to remind myself this when I, when I criticize Ambrose of Milan as a, as a bully. I mean, he was a former senator, then became bishop, and he just continued to act like a senator. Um, but he was so pro-poor that the, uh, the welfare thing uh, institutions that he developed, if you went, were back in Milan at the end of the fourth century, and I, and, and I tried to pull off my Ambrose is a bully argument, they'd say, ridiculous. Look what he's done for the poor. So there are paradoxes everywhere. I like the way you frame just the dilemma that we're looking at here overall with this book. Again, Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. Um, this is the way you, you frame it, John. The, the relative lack of fixed social patterns in Christianity combined with its missionary zeal is one of its deepest vulnerabilities. Christians are prone to adopting local norms and accommodating themselves to the local context. The capacity and desire to fit in to a host culture makes them susceptible to the temptation to sacrifice some of their own ideals in an effort to win friends and influence people. Just take us a little bit deeper into this dilemma of how you see it play out against this huge canvas of, of Christian history. What do we make of that for our, our own practice today? Well, I mean, this is a this is one of the current questions that that come out of what is really just an attempt to do some pretty good history. Um, that the church w was always always so flexible at the cultural and uh, social level. So it, the church could move into the Frankish kingdoms of the fifth century, um, and it didn't have to remain Roman. It could, it could very easily become Frankish because although they cling to a creed, they don't cling to a culture. Uh, but what that meant was this, if you're not really careful, that social flexibility to be Frankish or Saxon um, can very easily become, let's adopt Frankish and Saxon warrior culture too. And indeed, we can see this uh, in real time because we have these amazing uh, poems produced by Christians where the gospel, uh, the, the story in the gospels, is retold with Jesus as a warlord traveling with his war band, who are the apostles. And although it's probably metaphorical, this, this great um, Saxon poem called the Heliand um, really is buying into what pagan warrior culture in the in the medieval period because it's trying to say look Jesus is like the great warrior and they even retell the sermon on the mount that basically turns the sermon on the mount into a we can be honorable nice merciful warriors okay but of course you know in the course of time the church is totally enveloped in that culture now that's just one example i could give many unfortunately um and I think we see it today. Our desperation to reach, you know, American culture, Australian culture right now can get to the point where we adopt American and Australian secular values over gospel values. 
And it's it's in an effort to relate in order to convey Jesus, but actually you end up conveying a Jesus who in the medieval period was a warrior or in our period was just the nice guy who's happy for everyone to do every, everything that they like because he loves you. I think that is just completely worldly. It's exactly the same thing. We could take a lot of tangents off that one. That's why I wanted to introduce that concept because it's amazingly uh, helpful to be able to look at history through that lens and also to look anywhere in our own day, and it works in Australia and in the United States and anywhere else this happens because of this indigenous principle yes. of Christianity. Yeah. It it fits into any context, but also critiques each context, and the whole deal of discipleship is to differentiate between the two. Fortunately, the Lord uh, raises up reformers uh, through all of history. I, I mean, I don't just mean the great 16th century reformers. Um, but throughout history, there are always reformers who are saying, no, hang on, that doesn't look like what's in the gospel. Um, and so e- even in this um, terrible, you know, e- even in these terrible periods where there are um, bishops sidling up to um, the Frankish warriors uh, to say, oh, we'll send you our missionaries with, with your Frankish warriors and we'll set up monasteries, completely endorsing violence in this way, at the very same time, um, you've got someone like uh, Boniface, uh, who um, is uh, preaching to the hardest of the hard uh, pagans and has enormous success, but will only do it through persuasion because we have his letters. We have letters to him. We know he was absolutely committed to simply preaching Christ and arguing people into the kingdom. Well, he was eventually martyred, but he was a reformer. Uh, at, at the wealthy point of uh, the church collaborating with the Frankish Empire, you get a you get a bishop like Eligius in the north of France, who um, had some kind of conversion experience that meant this very wealthy man and jewelry maker just started giving away all his jewelry and freeing slaves uh, in the seventh century um, with his money. I mean, because there were still hundreds of thousands of slaves held by the Saxons, held by the Franks, held by the leftover of the Roman Empire. And he would just go around Europe buying buying them and setting them free with no obligation. So, uh, and then we can go to the 10th century and and, and look at Otto, uh, the, the great reformer who reformed all of the monasteries of Europe um, because he ended up saying, we are so wealthy here in France, in Christian, in Christian France, uh, that we don't look like Christians anymore. In fact, maybe we are worse than Christians. And his message spread like wildfire. My my point is one of my biggest takeaways. I mean, it's interesting that you keep on landing on all these big takeaways. That's absolutely right. But perhaps my biggest takeaway is the Lord will not let His gospel go without a witness. In every age, He will ri- raise up someone to say, "No, we we have compromised. We must get back to the Lord Jesus and look like Him and and serve the world." Is that what what you mean then, John, about saying that sometimes the darkest and brightest moments of church history happen at the same time? Because that's when he raises up the reformers, when that witness is being eclipsed, and so you see the best come right out of the worst? Uh, Yes, exactly. I mean, I gave you you an example of Ambrose at the end of the fourth century is exactly the same time as the Cappadocian Fathers establishing the first hospital. So that's that's a good example. Eligius in the seventh century is a good example. Otto in the the tenth and eleventh century is a good example. you know, whatever we might make of Francis of Assisi, I mean, I don't know what to be make to what to make of him, uh, to be honest with you. But he he was uh, 
an extraordinary figure who ended up in the you know appearing in the crusade and begging the crusaders to let him go across the enemy lines and try and convert the sultan he got beaten up and you know only just survived for his trouble but he was he wanted to preach the crucified one to the sultan um and you know that stood as a contrast to the sort of violent uh and quite wealthy crusader motif um and i think did did some good but then you know this, this obviously in the 16th century there are reformers who you know that we we know but i think they're just part of a tradition where the lord is always raising up reformers and i think of this modern period um y- yes um i said the darkest period that i know of in all of church history was you know just last week pretty much in the course of time the child sexual abuse but also this is an extraordinary time where the church is doing amazing good around the world um the the research into the contribution of the of christianity to social capital is is now clear i mean you know there's lots of american studies there are british studies there are australian australian studies uh, that show that the church is at the forefront of caring for the poor. They're at the forefront of still freeing uh, women from trafficking. Uh, they're, they're at the forefront of charity in Africa. And so, yes, at the, at the worst times and the best times, they, they're often the same period. This is why I wanted to talk with you about this book, John, because that's the whole theme of this Gospel Bound podcast. My book, Gospel Bound, is to say, there are all kinds of reasons to feel anxious about what's happening. I don't want to I don't want to dismiss any of those concerns. And at the same time, you you turn that prism from a little bit of a different angle. You trust that God is at work. You start to look for that. And all of a sudden you start to see the best come out. Just doesn't show up on Twitter very well, but it but it's God at work nevertheless. And that's the stuff of good careful, historical, God-trusting history. Based on your view of Constantine, how do you see Christian pursuit of power relating to our evangelistic and apologetic witness? Well, I think Christianity does fine without any power, um, because the most striking and successful period of church history uh, (laughs) was probably the third century. you know, I mean, the first is exciting, but they're so tiny. The, the second is still the same, but the third is where there are real numbers of Christians, but they are still singing the beautiful tune of Jesus, which is love as you've been loved. They are persecuted, but they, they still say, no, nope, we're, we're going to serve you anyway. Cheerful, cheerful losers. They're cheerful. Is this where this comes in? They're cheerful yeah. losers. And um, I, I, it's not that they went looking to lose, and nor is it that they had the slave mentality of the loser. Um, when, when people sometimes hear me talk about the Christians as good losers or cheerful losers, they think, oh, are you saying we should be losing these? But no, I, no. Um, and these Christians uh, of, of the third and um, early fourth century were so confident. They thought, the thing is, they thought they'd already won. That, that's the point. They thought they'd already won because Christ had been raised and ascended and was the king. And they just had to preach the gospel. And if they, it, you know, you might kill me, but but you've already lost. So actually, they can lose at the social level uh, because they know they've already won. So it, it it's just important to clarify that this Christian humility of that, you know, well, first, second, and third centuries grew out of 
an extraordinary Christian confidence. Um, what happens in the fourth century, um, certainly by the end of the fourth century, but I don't believe it happened in the early fourth century, is that Christians became more insecure. And uh, when you are more insecure, you grab social and political military power to shore up. It's a compensation mechanism, right? You know, we all know that the biggest bully in the schoolyard is usually the most insecure lad in uh, in the schoolyard. And and that that can happen. Um, so insecurity can lead to this bully church, but real security in Christ, knowing that you've already won in Jesus, uh, that uh, produces a humility and a willingness to be a cheerful loser. On Constantine himself, I don't subscribe to the view that he was the great downfall of the church. And I, I spend, you know, two quite lengthy chapters uh, analyzing what he did. He, he, he maintained a pretty flexible policy. The Edict of Milan and some of the letters he wrote uh, allowed pagans to still be pagans. He said, I don't like paganism. I think it's the devil. Uh, but it, yeah, And it would be great if you all became Christians. But he also said, I know if I try and force you to become Christians, as you were just trying to force Christians to be good Romans, it, it will backfire. So I, I want you to become Christians, but I'm not going to force you to do it. And he maintained that that policy uh, right, right to his end. But what happened 30 years after Constantine is Emperor Julian, uh, the apostate, in just two or three years turned everything back. He sacked all Christian professors of, of the academies. He sidelined Christian welfare programs. He tried to copy Christian welfare programs. Everyone in his state department uh, who was a Christian had to resign. And Christians at the end of his very short reign thought, oh my goodness, are we going back to the great persecution at the beginning of the fourth century? And uh, well, he, he was killed on the battlefield uh, in 363. And so his reign was very brief. And after him, it's, this, is, this is how I, I understand what happened in the fourth century. After him, Christian said, never again. We cannot risk um, another Julian. So then they started to use all the means, all the social, political, legislative means to oppress, repress paganism, sideline heretics. And so by the end of the fourth century, by the time of Ambrose, and then into the fifth century, you are really now getting Christendom. But it doesn't be. It doesn't really even begin in Constantine. I mean, th maybe that opened the door. Well, a Christian emperor—that is a pretty interesting thing. Um, and by the way, I do think he was a uh, as genuine a Christian as we can, you know, imagine a Roman emperor emperor to be. Uh, when you read his actual writings and letters and decrees, he sound he does not sound like just a political. Um, making a political maneuver. He sounds like he thinks Christ is the Lord. I wish I could have sat down with him uh, and said, you know, he loves you and, and, and his cross, it's not just a symbol for the battlefield. His cross means your sins are forgiven and you can rest in that. I get the sense that he, even to his uh, death, was insecure in the love of God. And, and I'm not alone in thinking that. Um, some great scholars have analyzed his material to say it's really remarkable. He never speaks of God as loving. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, so perhaps didn't think he was deserving of baptism? Why he delayed that, maybe? Well, I mean, it was a pretty common thing to delay baptism. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. And to, the, to, to your deathbed that late? No, no. Okay. Um, but 
is because there was a quite a strict uh, – I mean, if we had had time, I would love to talk to you about education, <laughs> the church and education. Yeah. They were super nerds, yeah. man. None, none of this <laughs> none of this. Uh, do Christianity explored and in, and in eight weeks you're, you're a Christian. They, oh, yeah, the, catech- the, catechism, the catechism back then was serious. In yeah. the year 200, you had to do 144 hours over three years of learning. And you, you could do a fast-track version in the year 300 in Jerusalem – uh, that was only 126 hours, but you had to do it in the seven weeks of Lent. Um, <laughs> so uh, someone like Constantine, though, could could have thought, well, I haven't done enough study to uh, really know the faith as I should, and so maybe I, I don't deserve baptism. And yes, you and I you know, would think that's a lamentable way of thinking about it, but it's understandable, I think, in his context. Well, I'm going to do a quick final three here with John Dixon, author of Bullies and Saints, An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History, published by Zondervan. So we'll go through these quick. John, final three, how do you find calm in the storm? I find calm in the storm by going back to the Gospels, reading the Gospels, reminding myself who my Lord really is. The voice of Jesus. Can't go wrong there. Where do you find good news today, John? (laughs) Same answer, brother. <laughs> uh, well, you could change it up a little bit. <laughs> uh, you know, after after writing this book, I think I should just live in the Gospels, <laughs> live in the Scriptures, and 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 never emerge. But look, I mean, where do I find good news in in the average little local church that's preaching the Scriptures and trying to form a community of love that's just one by one trying to serve the local community? I think little local churches. Uh, where the uh, where the real action is, and when we get to glory, and lo- the Lord opens the books, He'll say, "Look at that! Look at that little church that did that." Love it. What's the last great book you've read? Great book I've read. It's got to be great. First one. Does, First one you think of? Does the Apostolic Fathers uh, rereading the Apostolic <laughs> Fathers? Uh, that's fine if that's the closest one you could grab. Uh, well, Richard Borkham's uh, Magdala. His uh, new book, uh, which is a, a history of the town of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from. I mean, only Richard Borkham, you know, could could <laughs> write a four hundred page book on uh, <laughs> on one little Galilean town and actually make it exciting. I like that. I like that. Appreciate this, uh, John Dixon, author of Bullies and Saints: An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History. John, thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound. Thank you, brother. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gospel Bound. For more information, including past episodes, transcripts, and to sign up for my newsletter, go to tgc.org slash gospelbound. If you like what you've heard, you may also like my new book written with Sarah Zalstra called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. You can find it wherever books are sold. Mm-hmm.